Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation entitled, The Triumph of the Lamb. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, as Dr. Newfeld presents a message entitled, Jesus Against Jezebel. One of the inflammatory issues in the contemporary church continues to be the place of what many call the charismatic gifts. You know, I mean here most specifically uh, things like the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. You know, for some, these gifts ended or ceased in the first century with the completion of the New Testament. But for others, these gifts were given to the church to be both used and enjoyed until Christ comes again. But even among those who hold to the ongoing use of these gifts, the question still remains as to what place they hold in the church today. You see, some believe that the prophetic gifts are always necessary to any healthy church, and so they must always be in use, and yet others believe that these gifts are less than primary and may appear at different times in different places depending upon the will of the Holy Spirit and the need of the hour. In other words, they are given on occasion. But as important as that discussion is, the even more important question is, what is meant by the gift of prophecy? You see, for our purposes, I'm going to make what I think two very important distinctions. First, I think we must distinguish between preaching and prophesying. For preaching and for teaching, the task of the preacher is to declare the message of the apostles or to help people understand what the Bible says and what it means. But prophecy is a declaration of a word that comes directly from God through a gift and not through the pages of the Scripture. And so a preacher might say, this is what the Lord says because he has read the Bible text and has understood it accurately and can apply it to our lives. But when a prophet says, this is what the Lord says, he or she says it because they sense that God has communicated a message directly to them. There's a second distinction. There's a world of difference between a prophet that wrote Scripture and a prophet that did not write Scripture. See, prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Luke or any other biblical writer wrote down truths that are what I call supracultural. See, I mean by that that what they wrote down is God's word for all people at all times and in all cultures. But on the other hand, in Acts 11, verse 28, it records a man named Agabus who prophesies by the Spirit that there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem. You see, that's what I might call time-bound, situation-specific prophecy. So I hope you see there's a vast difference between the two. So here's a little secret. If Agabus had never prophesied a thing throughout his lifetime, it would have made absolutely no difference to the universal church or to the revelation of God's truth. What he said is time-specific and relates to a unique set of circumstances and to a very specific people and is not God's truth for all times. That's the difference between someone who has a gift of prophecy and the kind of prophet who wrote the Bible. And that 
time-specific prophecy is the charismatic gift of prophecy. It's not God's truth for all times to all people. It's rather a word from God to a very narrow and specific thing. Now, the reason I've taken the time to explain that is because we've been studying God's word to the seven churches of the Roman province of Asia. And today, as we discuss what Christ says to the fourth of these churches, to the church of Thyatira, we're going to see that the issue of the gift of prophecy was front and center to a problem in that church, which threatened its undoing. And so with Bible in hand, let's read Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed your first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed by idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality." Behold, I will throw her into a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden." Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, as I've done with all the other churches, let's start with a bit of background to the city of Thyatira. This is now the fourth city we discuss, and I think it's accurate to say that this city was probably the least influential city of the seven that are mentioned in this letter. It has no seaport, and it's not known for its trade or commerce, and unlike Pergamum, this city had no political influence. Furthermore, even though this city did have some temples, it was by no means a religious center. But this city is what we might call today a blue-collar union town. I mean, think of it this way. If you want a job working as a longshoreman in Vancouver, unloading ships that come from the entire earth, you can't get a job apart from the unions. The unions and the trade always, without exception, go hand in hand. You know, in the same way, you would never be able to work in Thyatira without belonging to one of the trade guilds. The guilds owned every trade, and without them, no trade was done. Some of you who know your Bible well might remember that the very first convert in Europe came from the city of Thyatira. In Acts 16, verse 14, Luke records that in the Greek city of Philippi, while Paul was preaching, he says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. God opened her heart that day, and she believed the gospel. And Lydia, no doubt, was a businesswoman and a merchant who purchased products from the trade guilds and sold them in Greece. And so we have to assume that she had spent her lifetime working with the trade guilds of Thyatira. 
You know, trade guilds in the ancient world were more than unions. They were fellowships. You know, members often shared a common meal dedicated to one of the pagan deities. And if, if you did not participate, you were less likely to rise in your profession. See, what complicated matters further was that the meals were often accompanied by sexually licentious behavior. So imagine, if you will, a trade union that demanded you participate in a religious festival which was held in a stripper bar, replete with lap dancing and other sordid activities. There you get the picture. Now, if you've been listening to this series, you would know that the church in Ephesus was very clear in teaching its people no participation in this kind of stuff. But in the church in Pergamum, a small minority even taught a theology that permitted believers to do that. But it was worse in Thyatira. A woman had a word of prophecy. She claimed that God had said to her that participation in this matter was fine. Now notice, she's not giving a time-specific word. She claims she has a revelation from God that contradicts the Bible. Now, remember, in Ephesus, the question of testing false prophets and false apostles was key to their church life. But it would appear that things were different in the church in Thyatira. No one was demanding this prophecy be tested. I mean, the entire thing was a mess. And so, what would Jesus say to a church like this? Well, as before, Jesus begins by identifying himself to the church. He's the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And of some interest is the title Son of God, because it's found only here in Revelation. The reason for that title is it's a quote from Psalm 2 with an emphasis that the Messiah is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, and it proclaims the Messiah is the Son of God and also the one who forces his enemies to cower before him. And so, as Jesus comes to Thyatira, we know his seriousness. His eyes are flashing in fire. These are eyes of anger, and his feet of burnished bronze display that he's willing to crush his enemies under his feet. Indeed, Psalm 2 ends with the words, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. So for some of us whose knowledge of Jesus is desperately deficient, this is a surprise to us. But indeed, unless we see the anger of Jesus, we will not see what he desires of us. Let me share with you a few comments from our listeners. This is one of the most insightful and fulfilling studies I have ever heard in my life. Another, I'm a pastor and I've been listening to Back to the Bible podcast since the fall. I'm very thankful to be able to listen to the daily podcast and have my own life and ministry enriched with excellent teaching that Dr. Neufeld provides. And thank you at Back to the Bible for all the amazing work you do. You've helped my walk more than you'll ever know. What a great encouragement. And it reminds us to say thank you. Your prayers and financial support, your commitment, makes all our Bible teaching ministries possible and available to anyone thirsting to hear. Please continue to partner with us. Together, lives are being encouraged and changed. Offer your generous support today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. You might think that an angry Jesus would have absolutely nothing positive to say to the church in Thyatira. 
But there's all the world of difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Unrighteous anger simply sends out missiles that attempts to hurt and destroy. But righteous anger is focused anger, focused like a laser beam at unrighteousness and never does harm to that which is good. And so it really should be no surprise at all if we find Jesus praising the church in Thyatira. Indeed, Jesus makes five noteworthy statements of what that church is doing well. Let's list them. One, their works. Two, their love. Three, their faith. Fourth, their service. And five, patient endurance in the face of trial. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see a list like that, I come to a conclusion that this was a pretty good church. I mean, these five things are not minor things, but there's more. They've been growing in these virtues so that when Jesus notices that their latter works exceed the first, he means to point out that their progress is always increasing in the grace of God. Were it not for this prophetess, I suspect that Jesus would not have one negative thing to say here. But that's just the issue. The church of Jesus Christ is called upon not only to increase in the virtues of grace. Church of Jesus Christ must face battle and threats from both without and within. See, I find that so often lacking in our thinking today. Many churches have no way of dealing with evil. You know, they're hopelessly naive. They think as long as they're growing well, all is well without ever identifying and fighting evil. But there is evil. There are false teachers and false prophets everywhere. There are those who would disrupt the grace of God. You know, in Matthew 13, Jesus makes the point that the evil one comes and plants weeds in the midst of the wheat. And so it is with this woman. Jesus calls her Jezebel. Now, I don't think that was her real name, but it's the name that he gives her. You know, in the Old Testament, Jezebel was a wicked woman who married King Ahab. And even though Ahab was not a good man in his own right, Jezebel inspired him to greater evil than he would ever have done on his own. And this prophetess Jezebel was inspiring evil in her church. Moreover, the first Jezebel was a foreigner who taught her husband idolatry. Thus, she never truly belonged to the people of God, but was Satan's tool to subvert the people of God. And hence, her title, Jezebel, fits so well in what Jesus says to this church. Verse 20 says, Jezebel calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, this is the key to the passage. Verse 20 blames the church, saying, you tolerate that woman. But what should the church have done? Well, according to verse 21, Jesus said, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent. Now, indeed, this matter of time shows us that what Jesus has in mind is not rashness, but rather a measured response. In Matthew 19, Jesus records and tells us what to do if a brother or sister sins against us. He specifies a series of stages of church discipline. The first is one-on-one. That's to say, in many cases, it really is possible to bring someone to repentance by keeping the matter small. The next step involves taking two or three others along. And then finally, the matter becomes a matter for the whole church. If then the person will not repent, They are to be treated as an unbeliever and removed from fellowship. All of that means that the church is not to act rashly, but it is to act decisively. 
Church discipline is no small matter. It's a gift given by the Lord to his church. It's a powerful tool that is intended to keep the church pure. If a church will not use this tool, the church is made subject to the wiles of the evil one. If no discipline, then Satan has his own way. But no discipline had been done here. And because the church had not acted, Christ now declares that he's going to act. His first action is that he will afflict her with sickness, along with all those who follow her advice and teaching. And then, if that's not enough, Jesus declares that he's going to kill her children. Now, before we go on, I want you to notice that there's a distinction made here between those who follow her teaching and those who are her children. Now, I don't think that we're going to assume that this means her literal children. I think Jesus is making a distinction between those who merely follow her counsel and those who become her disciples and are teaching the same thing that she's teaching. You know, in Scripture, there's always harsher punishment for those who teach error than those who merely follow error. And Jesus follows this formula. Those who follow her teaching are going to become ill, and those who teach her heresy, well, they're about to die. Now, some of us might find this kind of talk shocking, but we should not. You see, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks of God punishing those who partake of the Lord's table in vain. And in Acts 5, we learn of Ananias and Sapphira dying before the Lord. I mean, does that kind of thing still happen today? Well, yes, sometimes it does. According to his sovereign purposes, God will act sometimes punishing immediately and sometimes withholding his punishment until the last judgment. But in either case, if you, my listener, are the one who are disrupting your church or are spreading false teaching, you need to take this warning. Christ, the Son of God, whose eyes flash with the fires of his anger, is right now defending and protecting his church. And so given this state of affairs, what was the church of Thyatira to do? According to Jesus, the church was to do three distinct things. First, those who are faithful are simply called at this point in time simply to observe. As Jesus strikes with sickness and with death, verse 23 says, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and will give to each according to her works. See, the implication here is that what happens next is to be taken to heart. After Jesus acts in the church in Thyatira, the church is never to forget that Christ demands of them that they act to defend the honor of Christ. How much better it would have been if they had used discipline instead of neglecting discipline and waiting until the Lord's judgment. And so the church was to know that Christ searches heart and mind. Now, the second thing the church was to do was to carry on. Jesus says he lays no other burden on them. I think he means by that that those who are faithful are acknowledged as being faithful. Jesus mentions those who have not learned the deep things of Satan. You see, Jezebel's prophecy was the wisdom of Satan, so don't listen to her. Christians are to be innocent of evil, not immersed deeply within it. And what's clear in this letter is that the majority had not been listening to Jezebel. But there's one more thing the church in Thyatira was called to do. They were called upon to reflect upon God's promises to them. Verse 26 speaks of a promise to the one who keeps Christ's word to the end. Jesus quotes Psalm 2. 
I mean, Psalm 2 states that the Messiah will rule the nation. And here, Jesus the Messiah says that those who keep his word will rule and reign with him. Furthermore, when Jesus promises them the morning star, he is, I think, referring to Daniel 12, verse 3, in which those who are wise are promised that they will shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. See, the idea of reigning with Christ in eternity necessitates faithfulness now. Indeed, if Psalm 2 tells us that the Messiah is going to break rebels in pieces, and if Jesus tells his church that we will be doing this alongside of him, that we are reminded never to allow Jezebels to be in the church and to be unchallenged. For to allow Jezebel to continue to prophesy is to neglect the role for which Christ has been training his church. Of course, we might well ask, but when are we to rule over rebel nations? And I think the answer to that question is not answered until we come to Revelation 20, when it's described a 1,000-year period of time in which the nations will be ruled by Christ and his saints a time that precedes the end of all things, but this matter doesn't come up until later on in the book. But the church in Thyatira is to remember that they have been called to reign with Christ. So now would be a good time to learn to exercise his dominion. And we, the church of today, are also well served to remember the same thing. We're far more than a struggling church. We are now being prepared to rule and reign with Christ, and it is for this reason that we must be faithful. We must be faithful so that we will not lose our reward, and we must be faithful so that we will attain to the role that God has for us. John, this is a powerful message for the church, a church that needs to stand forward and, and, and live up to what Christ expects of us. Uh, but let me ask you a question that may be a little bit unrelated, but you'd mentioned it earlier. What is your perspective on prophecy today? Yeah, I mean, I would argue that uh, the, the gift of prophecy has not ceased, but is ongoing. But by that, I'm always very careful to make a distinction that if anyone claims to have a revelation from God, which is some kind of like a biblical truth kind, a truth that escapes its time, a, a supracultural truth for all time, you know, I always reject that outright. I mean, the Bible is not being written today. Nobody adds to a word from God. I would argue that any prophetic utterance has to be to a specific situation, which is often very practical in nature. You know, um, somebody may have, you know, the Lord is calling you to do a certain thing or something of that nature. And, and then we test that and we ask the kind of questions. But what we find in the book of Revelation is that the church had allowed someone to, de- to make declarative statements. This is what God says about a certain kind of morality. I mean, I think we would always reject that. Thanks so much, John. We look forward to tomorrow's message again in the book of Revelation. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.
The Triumph of the Lamb, a study in the book of Revelation, is Dr. Neufeld's most recent series. This four-volume series will be heard in its entirety over the next number of months. But each time we broadcast a new volume, we want to offer it to you at a very special price. Volume 1 includes an in-depth look at Revelation chapter 1 to 5, including a study of the seven churches, and all 15 messages are yours on CD for only $10, and it includes shipping. So order The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 1, today for your personal study or as a great addition to your church library. And remember, this series and all All of our ministry programs are available as a result of the gracious gifts of our listeners. So order Volume 1, The Triumph of the Lamb, today for only $10, or make a gift to support this ministry by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.